Welcome to Global Dispatches. I am your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this podcast, we discuss topical global issues and we go deep with foreign policy thought leaders and celebrities who discuss their life and career. My guest today, Stephen Morrison, is the Senior Vice President and Director of the Global Health Policy Center at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. He's had a long and fascinating career working on development, human rights, and health issues around the world. He began his career studying the political economy of countries that bordered apartheid South Africa, and then worked on African issues in the 1980s and 1990s in Congress and for the Clinton administration. We have a pretty wide-ranging discussion. We talk about the origins of the Eritrean-Ethiopian conflict and his experiences working in the Horn of Africa during a pretty turbulent time. Later, he started the USAID Office of Transition Initiatives and served in Bosnia during the height of the Civil War, where he had some very close calls. And they were picking people off coming out of a pass, coming across a pass. And this was a common practice. This was a fascinating conversation. I think you'll love it. I know I did. Remember, you can subscribe to Global Dispatches podcast on iTunes. You can get our app for free. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out our archives and get in touch with me. And now here it is, my conversation with Stephen Morrison. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune in to Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season four, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I went overseas um, in 1983 to do doctoral research in Southern Africa, and that was for a degree, a PhD in political science. Science, and I was um, I was based in Botswana, and um, of course that was still in the midst of apartheid, and uh, it involved quite a bit of in and out fr- uh, and engagement with South Africans. So that was really the first serious um, international. I lived a few yeah. years before that. I had lived for a year in in Zurich, in Switzerland, and I had studied at the university there in in Zurich. And I, in the course of that year, which was 19, the academic year of seventy five, seventy six, I had uh, traveled to Egypt, Jordan, and Israel. So I guess that would be the. If I reach way back, that would be the first really formative experience in terms of uh, traveling in the Middle East. Uh, what compelled um, you to go to those places back then? Well, I had the opportunity um, earlier uh, to to study in Zurich. I was studying German uh, when I was in college, and um, I received a fellowship from the Rotary Foundation International, and I took that up, and then I figured, well, I'm within 
I'm within a reasonable distance of of the Middle East, and I've never been there, and I was quite curious. And um, so I just pieced this together with a friend and wandered in the region for two and a half months. And it was, for me, that was a very, a very foundational mm-hmm. um, experience in being able to uh, really immerse myself in a region that I hadn't been in, hadn't had any experience with. But later was, when I went... Yeah, it was just pardon, after the, it was just a couple of years after the Yom Kippur War, right? Yes. yes. So, Yom Kippur War had started when I was a freshman in college. And um, so uh, I was um, coming into the region. It was, uh, it was still in a, quite unsettled uh, and, and nervous, um, but it was, it was in a period of, of regional stability, I mean, a reasonable stability at that time. Too. Did you ever like, personally experience the unsettling, the unsettlement of the situation, the, the fragility? In the Middle East? Yeah. Well, certainly crossing um, um, crossing the Allenby Bridge from Jordan into Israel was um, uh, was eye opening because you know there you you get on a bus you cross the you cross the border area you get into a you know a containment center and then you are basically at the at the mercy of the Israeli authorities in going in going through the rest of the process. So you began to see how how these border crossings had become militarized. Um, I was just recently in Israel, f- really for the first time in 39 years since that visit, and I was remembering that. And uh, as we were going in and out of the West Bank, still pretty militarized. Um, yes. Still quite militarized, um, more so, in fact, in terms of I mean the the transformation that's happened to, uh, in terms of the way the territories are divided today. I mean, going back 39 years later, at that point, at that time in the 70s, of course, you didn't really have a two-state solution. You didn't have you didn't have acknowledgement of of, of proto-sovereign ambitions for for Palestine. Um, the um, in terms of Egypt. Um, the, um, uh, you know, the turn towards America, um, was beginning, but had not really culminated in Camp David, right? This was before that. Um, so it was, but it was after the, you know, the, the end of the Soviet alignment. So it was a great, much greater openness to Americans. So what in was, that period, in the mid seventies, what was your uh, doctoral research that brought you to Botswana? Well, I was interested in looking at the political economy of countries in the that b- bounded um, South Africa. Initially, I was going into Zimbabwe, which had just um, become um, a democratic state, non-racial democratic state, and. Um, Initially, I was going there, and then I got hung up in some of the politics of the university. And the first, as Mugabe came to power, and and there was a lot of tension and changeover, so I shifted from Zimbabwe to Botswana. The questions that I was looking at in Botswana were really, how did this country go in the 1950s and or late 40s and 50s when it was written off as hopeless, uh, as hopeless place that would never develop and would always be in the shadow as a satellite to the South Africans. How did it go from that perception to 
to a country that was regarded as democratic, as prosperous, as quite in, autonomous in a way. It was still interdependent with South Africa, but had been able to navigate and become, you know, a, a place that stood apart um, from most of the other instances of independent African governance where, you know, in the 80s, in the late 70s, early 80s, most of the literature, the political science literature, was uh, with, with a focus on Africa, was trying to explain instances of failure, instances of state collapse or of, of, of a turn towards authoritarianism, and kleptocracy, whereas in this case, Botswana stood out both with how it had navigated being next door to South Africa, but also for having um, gone a different path that was democratic, that was prosperous, that was reasonably transparent. So I was trying to answer that question. So even even in the, in the 70s, Botswana was, you know, the, the sort of... Uh, shining example of African prosperity as it is today, at least relative to other African countries. Yes, it had it had you know it had uh, uh, begun to distinguish itself. It became independent, you know, in the uh, in the uh, 1967 period, 66, 67, and um, and under you know Sir Sereti Kama, the vice president, had been Quentin Masire, who was this very cerebral dynamic vice president finance minister who had brought on board a bunch of, of um, very talented technocrats, some SWANA, some non-SWANA, had negotiated very favorable deals with the diamond industries, had negotiated very, very favorable customs deals with the South Africans. The mining sector had begun to blossom first with copper, then with diamonds. Um, it was a technocratic state that was really on the move and which attracted a lot of support and talent. So yes, by the seventies, this, this transformation was becoming very apparent. And, uh, and it was becoming clear that while the BDP, the Botswana democratic party was the, the a dominant single party, that there was still space within the system there for oppositional folks. And as I said earlier, I mean, it was a very living at that time in the seventies and eighties living in the, uh, on the margin of South of an apartheid South Africa was a dangerous proposition. You had the ANC, the African National Congress, had its underground networks operating within the region. Um, they that would invite periodic um, strikes um, uh, of various forms from the South Africans uh, that were murderous and dangerous. And there was a lot there was a lot of cloak and dagger going on along the border areas and reaching back into Zambia, which is where, of course, ANC and its armed wing had their had themselves headquartered. I mean, were you like viewed with suspicion being this white guy researching, yeah, researching political science at a time of such great political upheaval? Not really, uh, Mark. The. um, um I mean, I was look. I was trying to analyze a story that was a that was a reasonably good news story. I wasn't there. Um, I wasn't. I mean, I took a critical eye on the way things had gone there. But and the university was a pretty cosmopolitan place at that time. It was pretty open, open administration, and uh, there were a lot of researchers. It was a, it was an unusual and a, really an exceptionally open environment for for um, social scientific research. And that's not the case in, in many other countries in Southern Africa. Um, so, so 
did you want to be an academic? Was that your, your goal? That was my goal at the time. Uh, I was heading towards an academic path. Um, and, um, you know, I had gone out to the University of Wisconsin to study under Crawford Young, who was a legendary Africanist political scientist. And, you know, I was, a, I was um, you know, an acolyte of his. And um, I saw myself um, pursuing, you know, going down that path. As it turned out, that wasn't what happened. I mean, I was... I was um, actually uh, on my way to take up a tenure-line appointment at the University of Illinois when out of the blue came an offer to to work on the House Foreign Affairs Committee and on the Africa Subcommittee, which which after deliberating, um, I chose to do, which was a kind of watershed decision in terms of career pathways. So who was, this was what, in the, in the mid-1980s or so? Um, this was in... Um, Late eighties six. Late eighties. So um, who is who was ahead of the committee 86. at the time? Who are you? Committee at for? the time was Howard Wolpe. It's a congressman, Howard Wolpe, who's a who passed away a few years ago. He um a liberal Democrat, a political scientist, PhD out of MIT, who had done his his doctoral research in Port Harcourt in the Niger Delta in Nigeria Nigeria, and who had uh, gotten elected um in the in the seventy six cycle in um into congress and um risen to be um chair of the subcommittee and uh, i think he began in 80 as chair of the subcommittee after steve solars moved over to asia and so he had quite a bit of continuity in that role and it was that committee was terribly important in putting through the um comprehensive anti-apartheid act the u.s sanctions bill in the mid '80s, which um, uh, which was successfully moved through both the House and Senate, and then um, survived a veto from uh, President Reagan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the veto uh, was so overridden, right? Correct. Were you it there was. through that process, or did you come in after that? No, I came in right after that. I mm-hmm. came in right after that, and there was a second wave of of um, uh, a second round of legislation of of apartheid sanctions that we worked on uh, for a year and a half. Parts of that, only portions of that were ultimately passed. Mm-hmm. But um, Were these like sanctions legis- on individuals or, or businesses? Well, there were different component parts to it. Um, and uh, But the, we were never able to get a full bill through and a second wave, but there was a lot of oversight responsibility on the, on the initial... Uh, legislation and that initial legislation was quite epic um, in 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 Congress asserting its will uh, on this area of foreign policy and putting a spotlight and it became quite important I think also as a counterpoint um, for the diplomatic efforts that Chet Crocker was undertaking because as you recall you know, Chet Crocker had an eight-year run as, as Assistant Secretary of State for Africa in the Reagan administration, with enormous continuity, and he had worked very assiduously on um, trying to get a negotiated settlement that would ultimately culminate in the 1988 um, accord that got the Cubans out of Angola, got the South Africans out of Angola, set the stage for eventually the negotiated settlement 
between um, the MPLA, the ruling MPLA, and the and Savimbi and the UNITA movement, but also set the stage for the um, for beginning to demilitarize um, portions of South Africa and to begin to roll back the Cold War mm-hmm. uh, uh, impacts that had aggravated conflicts there and in the Horn of Africa. And Chet Crocker was able to use, I think, the specter of, of further enhanced U.S. pressures upon South Africa as a, as a selling point in talking to the apartheid regime about the need to, um, to find some, way, some pathway out. Well, because they were – prob- yeah. well, I would imagine, though, the, the ANC was still somewhat uh, perhaps suspicious of the United States at the time. I mean – the Very argument, so. I mean, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, was it was basically a, a Cold War logic rationale that led Reagan to veto the, um, the the bill. Yeah, and actually, when one of the first things that that I worked on when I went to the House Foreign Affairs Committee the, to the Africa Subcommittee in early '87 was Oliver Tambo, then head of the African National Congress, was invited to Washington and. Um, welcomed to meet with uh, congressional members and that that required you know the ANC was a terror was termed a terrorist body and so that required uh, some flexibility and waivers from Congress and the administration and it sort of marked a turnaround at legitimizing the African National Congress and giving them uh, respect and 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 fair treatment and giving them a platform to to speak to what they were all about. And there was quite a bit of, of turnaround happening in this whole period. And there were offshore talks going on um, in other parts of Africa and in Europe uh, involving the ANC and some of the representatives of the apartheid regime itself, along with other people representing different parts of the South African industry and other, other parts of the political spectrum. So were you still in Congress in 1994 when Mandela was finally inaugurated and elected? No, I was uh, I was working in the House from 87 um, to 91, um, and then I um, I left. Howard Wolpe had um, his seat uh, in the 19. 19- 1990 census, his seat was um, the the number of congressional districts in Michigan changed from uh, I think it was 18 to 15. He lost so he gets, his seat. It's like run against this. another member, probably. Correct. Correct. Yeah, so that's how they, so that's how they, they get rid of the good ones. Yeah. So he stepped down, and um, and I moved on, and then I eventually um, at the end of 91, early 92, I'm uh, by then Mengistu had fallen in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. The um, EPRDF had come to power under Malisanawi. I had been working a lot while I was working in Congress. I had been working a lot in the wars in the Horn as well. So I was familiar with um, with the EPRDF and its leadership, and I was familiar with the Eritrean leadership. And so I was invited to come out and work in the embassy in Addis and work on the transition, the referendum, on independence in Eritrea as well. So mm-hmm. I went and, out and did that for for a year and a half before... Uh, so you've um, been to uh, Eritrea a few times, I would imagine? Yes, I had gone to Eritrea during the war. On both um, When I was working on the Hill, I'd gone both on the 
on the government side, which was, of course, then the Mengistu regime. Um, so I'd been to Asmara um, and other points in Eritrea that were controlled by the by the government, but I'd also gone in through Sudan to spend time with the Eritrean People's Liberation Front, the EPLF, mm-hmm. um, which at that time was getting stronger and stronger and had scored a couple of major battle major battlefield victories um it was as we how got that, into can i can I ask like how does that work as a government official i mean how do you like sneak over a border to you know meet with a rebel movement like like what are like the logistics of that well the you know the we had done a good deal of that in a variety of places in angola in um, Ethiopia, uh, Eritrea, and Sudan, uh, in terms of both visiting government-controlled territory, but also going in on the side of insurgent movements. Keep in mind, there were lots of wars ongoing in that period. There was lots of humanitarian turmoil. The wars themselves were moving towards culmination in some fashion, and the U.S. had direct interests in them, in the case of Angola, we had a large covert war go- ongoing in support of Sabimbi. As a Democrat in Congress, we were opposed to that and seeking to contain that and reverse that. So it was a little bit, um, uh, it was not with great uh, enthusiasm that the Reagan administration and then the Bush administration saw us going out and visiting Sabimbi and his Mm-hmm. in his headquarters and and also going to Luanda we were doing similar things in visiting with the with John Garang and the SPLA forces in, in, South, in Sudan. South Sudan and doing similar things with the EPRDF and the EPLF in Eritrea and, so, and, what, and Ethiopia but at, the, the at that point what was that, the what, what, can I just ask um like what was the US interest in in that war like the in in the Eritrean war? Uh, well the the at first, the um, Melis Zanawi's uh, overthrow in Ethiopia, or the, the Melis Zanawi's successful overthrow of the previous regime in Ethiopia, and then yeah. the EPRDF's yeah. um, like liberation movement in Eritrea. Well, you know, it was not always entirely clear what our interest was as a country. I mean, we. <laughs> That's refreshing to hear. We did not, you know, uh, we were obviously very opposed to Mengistu. Mengistu was a satellite of the Soviets. The Soviets had put billions upon billions into supporting his prosecution of the war. Um, so we were clearly not aligned with at all and had very little other than answering the humanitarian emergencies that appeared, the massive famine of 83, 84, the echo famine that occurred in 87, 88. We were very much in the charge in the forefront of of, of uh, the humanitarian response, but we didn't really have a political, um, much of a political uh, relationship at all with that regime. And on the flip side, on the, uh, on the, on the insurgents, we didn't really know them very well. We didn't know the EPRDF. We didn't know the EPLF very well. We didn't have very little contact with them. We weren't supporting them covertly the way we were in other Reagan doctrine settings like Savimbi and UNITA. Um, it was it was you know it was more like Mozambique you know where uh, in the case of Mozambique um, we didn't get along with the ruling government which was a so seen as a Soviet ally but we didn't 
really understand, nor did we have an active support of Renamo. So and when, when Congress would get involved, when we would get involved in, in terms of visiting these areas, it was with a couple of different purposes in mind. It was to get to know who these people were and what they were doing and what their game plan was, because certainly from the Ethiopian and Eritrean side, they, it was beginning to look like they were going to win. Once the Soviet era began, the Soviet Union began to dissolve and began to disengage and began to look for areas of collaboration and de-escalating rivalry, uh, between the U.S. and Soviet Union in some of these flash zones, it it, it became quite apparent that um, the there was going to be some some culmination to these some conclusion to these chronic wars, and it was not going to be in the direction of 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 the ruling governments. So knowing what they were, who these guys were, and what they were up to, but also there were huge humanitarian emergencies uh, cropping up across mm-hmm. these wars. Which required cross-border, cross-border um, flows. It required our government working collaboratively with the World Food Program and others, and with NGOs, and moving pipelines of food and medicine assistance across sovereign borders into areas controlled by by insurgents. And that was non-traditional. That was unconventional. And uh, it required a rethink, really, um, in the Reagan and Bush years on how they did foreign, how they did humanitarian emergency assistance. It made people very nervous, but we were doing this in UNITA territory. We were doing this in, in John Garang UNITA territory in southern Sudan. We were doing it in Tigray and Eritrea, in the northern part of of then So that was the context in which you. Um, it, well, yeah, the context was set over the border. Uh, the, was the cross-border relief. The context was getting to know who these guys were militarily and politically. And um, so, have uh, you? And, did at the time did you meet uh, F. Werke, the the who would later become the president of Eritrea? Yeah, yeah, I met F. Werke was, when when yeah. uh, and when we entered we entered uh, from Sudan in January of ninety, and we were in their territory for about nine days and. In that period, they had taken 30 Polish sailors hostage off the coast um, on the Red Sea, um, off the port of Masawa, and they were holding these, ho- holding them hostage and um, inland. And um, at the conclusion of our trip. Um, in their territory, we were asked to take responsibility for moving them back into Sudan and turning them over to the Polish authorities, which was oh. something we agreed we agreed to do. So was that something that you set Africa out to do? I mean, did, pardon me. No, we is that something you? S- they they just said, "Hey, we have these hostages. We don't really want them. You can take them." Well, we knew we the in, the episode had begun before we arrived in Sudan and moved cross border into EPLF territory. The, the 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 ship that they had been on had been attacked a, a week or two before we arrived. The they had been taken hostage. They weren't. It was unclear where they were. Polish authorities had arrived in Khartoum to try and negotiate their way forward. So we had been briefed on what was going on, but we didn't see. We didn't understand that there was going to be any role for us. And so um, we had the culmination of our visit was a four-hour discussion 
uh, into the late afternoon with Isaiah Safaverki that concluded with him asking us whether we would take on this role. That they 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 wanted to hand these thirty uh, sailors over to uh, uh, inside Sudan to um, to the Sudanese authorities, who would then hand them over to the Poles. So that was the the first time you met uh, Afaverki. Um, when was the most recently? Like when was your most recent trip to Eritrea? Well, you know, things took a very dramatic turn yeah. for the worse well, not long after that, mm-hmm. and, and and it's only gotten worse. Um, so, Did you see of, this new UN Human Rights Report uh, released mm-hmm, a few, a few mm-hmm. weeks ago? It's just insane. It, I mean, it's, it's yeah. you know, the shorthand, they're calling it like North Korea and the Horn of Africa, but the level of Correct. repression and authoritarianism Correct. and the means of the their population control is just is is insane i mean it, and it, it's it's really really just like an extreme place and you know like so i'm uh, that's why i'm kind of wondering you know you had your this chance to meet uh this liberation leader uh, this mm. liberation leader early on in in his career but i guess what's your take on what what happened since then well i i worked intensively when i was later when i in, in 92 93 when i was working in uh, in the in the embassy in Addis, I was spending a week a month in Eritrea preparing for the referendum, and uh, which was which was in the spring of '93. And the um, um, so I was in and out of Eritrea, and that was an extremely hopeful period. Um, it was a period where um, uh, it was thought that the that the country was going to uh, stabilize and and become quite. Uh, quite open, but that was not the case. It did not become fully evident what was happening. Some there were some in retrospect. There were some indications of the level of intolerance and authoritarianism that was going to become ever an ever bigger force. But we, I think, with a turning point for Eritrea was when they went back to war against Ethiopia in '98. And by that time, I was back in Washington working in the administration, the Clinton administration. So, so I saw the war, and I saw I met Afaverki when he was coming through town. There was a period before the '98, the outbreak of war. There was a period when the Clinton administration was actually celebrating Isaiah Afaverki and Museveni and and Kagame as the new leaders in Africa, these uh, folks who had cut their teeth in, in years of armed struggle and then come to power and were now trying to build new forms of state power. And that, the, But that all of those instances decayed fairly rapidly. But I mean, there was a pattern, period when... Well, hmm? that pattern seems to be repeating itself right now in regards to South Sudan, right? Where you had... Uh, Salva Kiir initially celebrated by you know mm-hmm. the, the the you know yeah. African Africanists in in the U.S. government, and now he's taking the country down this horrible path. Yeah, I like, think that's what, a what very about good, like like what what about comparison? So I mean, I guess what does that say about um, U.S. foreign policy and and how you know American African es- experts in government have sort of their their approach to you know African strongmen over the last say twenty thirty years. Well, there have been these instances where we've aligned ourselves far too closely, to and too early with um, un- folks who were unproven Democrats claim claim to be Democrats but were unproven, and then they 
they turned. The other thing I would say is um, the creation of new states, and this is part of that, the creation of a South Sudan, the creation of an Eritrea, is a very uh, fraught process. Um, you know, look at just what has happened. And governing in those circumstances, I think, invites um, very repressive and authoritarian tendencies and, 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 is, and is very quickly and easily tipped back into open war open or under or underground war. And that's what happened between Eritrea and Ethiopia, and that's what's happened between South Sudan and, 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 and Sudan itself. Uh, and um, so we have to be very cautious. And I don't think that, I don't think U.S. policymakers are naive. I think the hope in looking back, I think there was good reason to be very hopeful when these wars were ended, because these were in the case of the Eritrea Ethiopia war, it was an 18 year struggle that had devastated the country. And now there was a prospect of, of things uh, going in a completely different direction. I don't think people imagined that there were going to be uh, this turn. Um, the, uh, the other thing that I'd say is that, you know, um, certain countries in Africa that have done quite well, have tended to be very authoritarian, and that's true with Kagame's Ethiopia, and it's true with um, the the method of yeah. the mode of governance that Melisanawi created in Ethiopia. Yeah, and we have to be kind of careful because, in some ways, what they do works very well, particularly if you're looking at health performance or development developmental growth, economic growth. But they're very authoritarian models. Um, so how long in all did you spend in, in Addis, and where did you go next? Well, I left. Um, Clinton, Clinton came into office in um, early 93, and then the administration came into, came into being, and then I was invited to come back in the, in the spring. So I returned in, um, in June and, and started working in the administration, first initially at AID and setting up the Office, uh, a new office there, uh, the Office of Transition Initiatives, which was designed. Yeah, can you explain, yeah, can you explain what what that office is all about? Because it's an important one, but I think it's like lesser known. Yeah, well, the you know this was um, this was in the immediate post Cold War era. This was the era of you know people had very much on their minds the trauma of that was ongoing in um, Somalia. There were a proliferation of situations where there were negotiated peace settlements where places were coming out of chronic war. And when um, uh, President Clinton came into power, Tony Lake came in as the head of the National Security Council, as the National Security Advisor. Mm -hmm. You had Brian Atwood come into AID. There was a lot of, of uh, ferment around, we need some new tools to operate in non-traditional ways in places that are coming out of chronic conflict and instability. And that's what led to organizing them and setting up this Office of Transition. And so like, what are some of those tools? Well, the, um, uh, first of all, the institution, the, the office is meant, at least from the period when we launched it, it was meant to be a place that had a different culture and a different way of operating. It was meant to be a place that had 
quick dispersing money and had a kind of expeditionary culture of people that were able to deploy into conflicted settings and could do um, a number of things that w might be seen as very important in restoring basic services and security. So if it, it could be something that was of a political and electoral, it could, it could be support to media, it could be support to electoral preparations, but it could also be uh, restoring basic services uh, if, if, if these were seen as very elementary in getting um, in, in giving people a sense of security of personal security if it was a matter of power or it was a matter of water or it was a matter of of um, uh, provisioning markets um, so, so this it, was before OTI like was formed yeah. formed well, was, with uh, that broad vision yeah. and we got involved in a variety of different places. We got involved in Angola and the Lusaka peace talks in trying to prepare for the demobilization of UNITA forces and trying to think ahead around what was going to be required to support that process to make make those UNITA um, cotters, uh, those UNITA troops, confident that they were going to be rewarded in a peace settlement and not victimized or abandoned. We got involved in the immediate, um, in the in the um, when um, Cedros was was um, overthrown in Haiti, and the U.S. came in and was trying to do quick quick action, community based programs. Um, what about in, uh, in Bosnia, in that area? Did, in did Bosnia, I got very involved in ninety, starting in ninety four, during the war pre Dayton, uh, in putting together programs in the mixed and in the interior of Bosnia where you had mixed communities of Croats and Bosniaks. They had signed an, a shaky accord between their two communities. In, and so what would uh, you do? Like what would be your, your sort of personal role going to Bosnia? Well, I went out initially over the summer of 94 and I, um, I was based out of Sarajevo, but I was circulating in the in, in the uh, uh, mixed Croat Bosniak towns in the interior, and I was um, accompanied by um, folks from an NGO that were very active there, and I was just talking to folks and trying to figure out if we invested some funds to try and um, support this this peace accord. What would it be, and how would we how would it be executed? And ultimately, we put a little bit of funding into um, the International Rescue Committee to begin doing some pilot projects in several different communities. But, and you know, by 90, the time, right, 94 mm -hmm. in, in Bosnia, I mean, it's, still, it's, it's a war zone at that point. Um, it was a dangerous you, place. Yeah. I mean, how did you, like, operate as, as a, you know, U.S. government official? Did you, you know, have to lay low? I mean, how did you just, like, get around from place to place, something as, as simple as well, that? Well, we had, we had support from the U.S. ambassador, uh, Vic Yakovich. Um, but it was, uh, a, we operated, um, you know, we were, we were non-traditional for sure. Um, the, uh, we didn't have, uh, most of the time we didn't operate with security and, um, um, and most of the time we were sort of on our own and, um, um, and we were, you know, usually partnering up with NGOs and going into communities and talking to them. 
you ever, were you ever was, like met with hostility or, or violence? We had a couple of episodes. Um, we were um, hijacked at one point. I was hijacked at one point at gunpoint by by some um, young guys that were out of uniform military who were trying to hijack vehicles. Oh, just and, like getting uh, they basically wanted your car. Yeah, yeah, they were, they were, uh, we were along the line of conflict, uh, and they were picking people off coming out of a pass, coming across a pass. And this was a common practice. Um, we were snipered in Sarajevo, um, and there were some confrontations as a, we, I deployed research teams in, into central Bosnia over the winter of 94, 95. And I was going in and out of the in that time to visit these teams, and things had reignited, and it was it was um, our teams had problems. Nobody got hurt. Um, none of us got hurt, but we had a couple of close calls that um, you know made it made it clear that we had to be very careful. How long were you at USAID? Until. Um, um, early '96, when I transitioned over to the Secretary's Policy Planning Staff, President Clinton was, um, you know, was up for re-election. Um, was going to take a trip to East Africa, um, so there was, you know, there was a lot of activity. It was after the Rwanda genocide. There was a lot of fear of a second genocide, either in Rwanda or Burundi. Um, the U.S. had taken taken some many hits for its posture during the its passivity and and um, decisions in the midst of the Rwanda genocide. The president was entering a you know a cycle, a re-election cycle. So there was a intensified interest on the Africa side of things. So I, we're almost out of time. I did want to talk to you about your current work at CSIS. Um, my understanding is that you started the CSIS health program. Is that right? Yes, I did. So I started where, it. Uh, yeah. I was running the Africa program. I came to CSIS in 2000. I was running the um, Africa program, and then uh, we started the we started something at the end of 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 2001. Uh, focused on um, HIV/AIDS, and we started it with Senators Kerry, John Kerry, and Bill Frist. We started a task force on HIV/AIDS with the idea of laying the groundwork for the U.S. supporting, laying the groundwork in Congress for the U.S. supporting um, programs on HIV/AIDS that would bring mass treatment antiretroviral treatment and which would move us into billions versus millions. Mm -hmm. So that was the initial thing that we did. And then that grew over this, that task force uh, uh, grew into a multitude of other activities over the subsequent several years. And then in 08, we decided that it was time to transform that into a more fully fledged center within CSIS that would do there would be more staffed up and could do a broader range of activities that could work and on infectious diseases, on maternal and child health, on health security issues. 
Well, we we remain very focused on um, on the those issues which uh, absorb the greatest amount of attention within the U.S. government. So it's HIV, TB, and malaria, um, which absorb huge amounts of resources, and where the U.S. has made its biggest impact, both its bilateral programs, but also working through the Global Fund. And uh, it's a big focus on maternal and child health, on family planning, on uh, on, on maternal and neonatal health, um, on immunizations. Uh, that's become a very, very big focus of U.S. Uh, policy as well. And on the health security front, obviously, you know, the, um, uh, the questions around preparedness for pathogenic outbreaks um, has been with us for some time, but Ebola has... Ebola has shot that agenda now we have way up and brought lots of attention, lots of resources forward. And so that's been a big part of our work. There are other things that we look at as well. Um, the, you know, chronic diseases in, in, in the world, in the developing world and, and, and in emerging markets are, are skyrocketing. Um, it's not clear um, how they're going to be managed. That's an issue. Uh, there's a big push globally towards universal health coverage and for building integrated basic services. And that's a big challenge, too, in understanding how that's going to be done. Uh, well, Stephen, thank you so much for your time and for you know sharing your stories with me. I think we've covered a lot of ground from Botswana in the 70s to uh, to today. So thank you. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you made it to the end, it means you're a dedicated listener of Global Dispatches podcast, and I sincerely appreciate that. I would also so appreciate if you left a review of the podcast on iTunes. It helps other people who are similarly interested in global affairs discover the podcast. So thank you, and we will see you soon. Bye.